Good morning, gents. Um, shall we come in, gather in? Let's fill up groups from the front. We're going to make a start in uh, one minute's time. Grab that tea, that coffee. Grab a brother. Head on in. Plenty of space at the front, gents. Head towards uh, these uh, front groups. Fantastic uh, to have you with us this morning, uh, guys. A very warm welcome to Burning Man. Um, just for those of you who this is your first time, um, my name is uh, Pat Allerton. I'm involved in uh, helping host Burning Man here at St. Michael's with the St. Michael's team, Charles Marnham and others. Um, it's fantastic to have you with us. Uh, the vision of Burning Man is simple. We like to gather together every other Thursday morning uh, to gather under God's word. And uh, we look to get uh, the best Bible teachers we can find uh, to come and open up God's word to us so that we leave uh, passionate and confident in the scriptures that it really does make sense of the world we live in uh, because it's true at the end of the day. So that's the vision. Uh, we're in the middle of a series uh, or the beginning of a series called The Tough Sayings, looking at the tough sayings uh, of Jesus. And uh, I'm thrilled uh, this morning to have uh, Jonathan Aitken with us. Um, Jonathan will be known to many of you, but uh, for those of you who uh, aren't so familiar, Jonathan, uh, by his own admission, has had one of the most high-profile and colorful careers in British public life. His career has spanned the worlds of books, newspapers, television, business, politics, parliament, prison theology, charitable service, prison reform, and offender rehabilitation. So he's, um, he's got rather a lot on his plate. So we're thrilled he can be with us this morning here at Burning Man. He is, in fact, a Burning Man, a good friend to us here. Uh, we're thrilled to have you, Jonathan. So would you please give a warm welcome to Jonathan Aitken. Well, thank you for that far too colorful introduction. Let's begin with just a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we ponder and pray about this most challenging of passages from the Sermon on the Mount, may your word flow into our hearts and may our hearts be open to your word through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, these talks are, I'm thinking, today rather optimistically called uh, the hard sayings, um, but we, I believe, have drawn the short straw this morning because today's reading, uh, which is Matthew 45, 43 to 48, I think it should be titled The Impossible Sayings. Um, for example, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, verse 548. Well, hang on, surely the gap between our normal human sinful natures and our Lord's heavenly God donator is so vast that it's almost impossible for us to bridge. Or how about pray for those who persecute you, verse 44. Uh, just think for a moment of that terrible scene in the Passion narrative when the Roman soldiers are nailing Jesus to the cross and as the nails are being hammered in, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them they know not what they do. Well, which of us could possibly achieve such loving, prayerful forgiveness towards brutal persecutors? And let's face it, love your enemies isn't much easier either. So, 
Houston, we have a problem with these apparently mission impossible demands from the Sermon on the Mount. And yet when you really look closely with understanding at what Jesus was saying, and when you apply his words to the three tough issues I'm going to concentrate on today, persecution, loving your enemies, and perfection, I think and I hope that you'll get round to seeing that the mission isn't quite so impossible as it sounds on first reading. <clears throat> uh, before we get into the details, I'd like to tell you a story, which may seem irrelevant at first, but isn't, about the Walmer lifeboat. I'm telling it because it's an example I think we should bear in mind when we wonder how on earth we're going to meet some of these challenges. Uh, in case some of you have never heard of it, Walmer is a small fishing port um, on the Dover stretch of coastline only a couple of miles from Deal. And this is a particularly treacherous, famously treacherous part of the Channel Coast because of the Goodwin Sands, which lie just a mile or so offshore, a sandbank which has caused a multitude of shipwrecks over the centuries. And this story is about the night of March the 8th, 1861. Anyone who comes from that part of the world and goes to lifeboat ceremonies has heard this story told time and time again. And it was a night when Force 9 and Force 10 gales were ripping through the channel. And in that tempest, a ship got wrecked on the Goodwin Sands. And it fired off its distress rockets, and the lifeboat men of Walmer came running to the lifeboat station and prepared to launch. But when these normally courageous oarsmen saw the savagery of the sea and felt the force of the gales. They were filled with fear and arguing among themselves, they said, look at the size of the waves. We'll never be able even to get out to the good winds. And then when we do get there, if we get there and we turn around, the tides and the winds will be totally against us and we'll never be able to get back. Well, just when this frightened talk among the lifeboat men was bringing them all to the brink of mutiny, the captain or coxswain of the lifeboat silenced them all with the legendary words, we have to get out, we don't have to get back. And that was a famous RNLI lifeboat cry which silenced the doubters and the warm old lifeboat was launched and despite the appalling conditions, <clears throat> it reached the Goodwin Sands, it rescued 16 sailors from their ship and made it back to port against all the odds. And those words, we have to get out, we don't have to get back, carried the day. And as we're dealing with these impossible sayings, just keep that story in mind and I may return to it. First of the three topics that I'm going to tackle is persecution. And I have some small insights into this uh, subject because for the last 10 years or so, I've been uh, honorary president of Christian Solidarity Worldwide, or CSW as it's more generally known. And this is widely acknowledged to be one of the world's most experienced charities in the specialized field of persecution research and advocacy against religious persecution. And CSW is a <clears throat> small charity, but an influential one. In money terms, we raise about 1.8 million a year. We employ some 30 multilingual specialists who monitor religious persecution, where it's going on, and provide authoritative reports on it to bodies such as 
the UN, US Congress, our own parliament, and other parliaments and institutions around the world. Now, from the vantage point of someone who reads regularly CSW's reports from the black spots of religious persecution and meets a good many of those who have been persecuted, I sadly can only report negatively with three major negative factors. First of all, the persecution of Christians and of other faith groups, such as Sikhs, Baha'is, Buddhists, Rohingya, Muslims, Yazidis, and many others, is contrary to expectations steadily rising around the world today. And this has been confirmed by none other than Justin Welby, who recently made the outstanding statement as Archbishop of Canterbury, and I quote him, the most common feature of Anglicanism worldwide today is that of being persecuted. And alas, he's right. 18 of the 37 provinces of the Anglican community are living under persecution. And some of these uh, acts of persecution make headlines, particularly the horrific cruelties of ISIL. But most of the worst persecutions in countries like Sudan, Pakistan, Eritrea, Nigeria, Iran, North Korea, go largely unreported. And all one can say with complete certainty is that the march of religious persecution in the 20th century across our modern world is steadily advancing and the methods of persecution are becoming increasingly brutal. Crucifixions are back, headings, amputations, the most unpleasant of tortures are frequent. It seems that man's inhumanity to man knows no bounds in modern religious persecution. And the other negative feature of the persecution scene is that governments of the West have been almost entirely powerless to stop it. Politicians, international groups, organizations, airstrikes are so far largely impotent. The outlook for this rising tide of persecution looks bleak. However, there are two beacons of hope on the gloomy persecution scene. The first is the extraordinary courage of those who are being persecuted, which they often display. And this, of course, is not new. Uh, the first ever Christian martyr was Stephen, stoned to death by an early group of persecutors led by Saul of Tarsus, and look how God transformed him. But in those dark days when Saul was approving of the killing of Christians, Stephen, the first martyr, showed absolutely astonishing courage. The story is told in Acts chapter 7 and verse 59 tell us, when they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, a few moments ago, I suggested that it was virtually impossible for any mortal human to emulate Christ's greats towards his persecutors who were hammering in nails to his body on the cross. And yet, no more than a year or two after Christ's crucifixion, we know that Stephen, at his stoning, prayed for his tormentors with the same Christ-like grace. And this still happens, or almost happens today. One of the most remarkable persecuted Christians I've ever met was a Chinese pastor called Pastor Yuan. His story is actually quite well known. 
He wrote a book about it called The Heavenly Man, which I commend to you. But Pastor Yuan went through those terrible tortures, beatings, and so on for his faith, but he survived miraculously, and in time he came to Britain, and he was the star turn at a recent uh, CSW conference. And he made a remarkable speech at it and inspired everybody. And at the end of it, when the standing ovation had ceased, it fell to me to thank him. And so I asked Pastor Yuan, how should we pray for you? And he gave an astonishing answer. He said, please do not pray that we should stop being persecuted. Instead, pray that when we are persecuted, that we will stay faithful. Now, that kind of courage has a sort of contagious inspirational effect. Persecution is growing around the world, but so paradoxically is the growth in Christian believers in countries where persecution takes place. And there may well be some mysterious spiritual linkage between these two. Uh, for example, the spectacular growth of Christians in China who now um, number well over 100 million may well have been fueled and encouraged to grow by the harassment and persecution that some Christian brothers and sisters received. It's a mystery, but maybe an encouraging mystery. The second beacon of hope in the world of persecution is the power of prayer. I could tell you several remarkable stories well known to our team at CSW where sustained prayer campaigns have resulted in unexpected last-minute reprieves from executions and releases from jails. But just to step back a bit from the present and to offer you an even bigger picture here, which is really inspired by the familiar thought that God's timing is not our timing, let me give you a strange personal example of how God's mysterious purposes in this field for his persecuted children can be and are fulfilled. Um, best part of 60 years ago, slightly less, um, I was a schoolboy, and like many schoolboys, I went through confirmation classes and prepared to confirmation. And I can't think how, but I have actually somehow managed to retain, probably grandmothers and mothers retained it, my uh, confirmation notebook. And the front page says, Jonathan Aitken, confirmation, 22nd of March, 1958, Eton College. And I've of course, I remember being prepared for confirmation, as some of you do. And the man who prepared me for confirmation, mysteriously called the conduct, was a chaplain called the Reverend Basil Greenup. And he had a bee in his bonnet about Christian persecution. And he had, somehow or other on his school holidays, he'd managed to get behind the Iron Curtain, which was extremely difficult, not utterly impossible to do. And he'd come back with these stories of the terrible persecution that was going on in um, <coughs> Iron Curtain countries, and he caught the imagination of at least this small boy as he told these stories. And <coughs> when you went through your confirmation class, it was full of blank spaces of things to play for, and <coughs> there was a page marked persecution. And so I wrote down, name of countries where Christians face persecution and need prayer, Iron Curtain countries. This is in my own spindly handwriting in 1958. Uh, Poland, Ukraine, Russia, Hungary. What's interesting about this, here we are a generation or so on, is that, of course, persecution has vanished from those countries. 
<coughs> religion flourishes in uh, all of them, and there is effectively no persecution. <coughs> so you say, you know, I won't begin to pretend that my uh, inadequate schoolboy prayers have anything to do with it, <coughs> but there was a thing called the Hungarian Uprising in 1956, which caught the imagination of the world and the Christian world, and millions of people did pray for persecution to uh, stop. So when one wonders sometimes, is there any use me praying for persecution to stop? Well, um, just um, think of that confirmation notebook as I occasionally do. Well, um, the fact that um, those prayers seem to have worked generations later, um, let's leave. And it was really unthinkable that the Iron Curtain would crumble. It seemed in an absolute impossibility to uh, anybody growing up in the 50s or indeed 60s. So it was sort of unthinkable to pray like that. But look. Well, let's move from praying the unthinkable um, to loving the unlovable, which is the second little challenge in our reading today, which in old-fashioned language says, love your enemies. Most of us probably don't have, in the old-fashioned sense, the word enemies. We're unlucky if we do, um, do if we're in the military or something like that. But nevertheless, sometimes in life's journey, uh, most of us do encounter vicious bullies, jealous and unscrupulous rivals, nasty adversaries, and thoroughly unpleasant, unlovable people. It's part of life. And Jesus rather uncomfortably reminds us in the same passage from the Sermon on the Mount that God our Father loves them too. And that's why there's that apparently rather enigmatic saying in verse 45, and he says, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Uh, so if we love Jesus, we are told we must obey his commands, and that includes loving the unlovable, which is sometimes mighty difficult. Let me venture into another personal story here, which perhaps illustrates the depths of the problem and may even offer a solution to it. Uh, when I was um, going through my sea of troubles, which really rather delicately referred to in the introduction, and I sometimes summarize as defeat, disgrace, divorce, bankruptcy, and jail, I somehow along the road managed to make quite a few unlovable uh, adversaries, uh, particularly in the media and the tabloid press. And, but by the time I had pleaded guilty to perjury and was starting my 18-month prison sentence in Belmarsh Prison, I really, thanks to an alpha course, thanks to Christian mentors, some of whom are in this room today, I really had tried hard to be at peace uh, with my previous journalistic uh, opponents and tormentors. After all, the whole debacle was my fault. There was no point being angry with journos who'd reported it. So I really made an effort to follow the Sermon on the Mount and to forgive even love my former enemies. But actually, I failed, and failed pretty badly. And the discovery that I had made a complete failure of this came on a sunny Saturday morning, about 10 days into my prison sentence, when I was walking around the exercise yard of HMP Belmarsh. And suddenly a friendly fellow prisoner comes up to me and says, hey, Jono, you're on the paper today. And he thrusts 
a copy of, I think it was the Sunday Mirror under my nose. And there is a huge half-page article with the headline, Stinker Aitken Too Scared to Come Out of His Cell. And the gist of the story was that um, I was a complete pariah prisoner, hated by all the others, and this made me terrified, and so I never dared to come out of my cell for um, any of the opportunities you get to come out of the cell. And I cowered away, refusing even to go to the showers, and as a result, I smelt the high heaven, and I was university known as Stinker Aitken. Um, this was tabloid reporting at its most imaginative, and I must have been slightly mad to um, be upset by it. But because I knew I had been trying to follow that passage in the Sound of the Mount, for some reason I became incandescent with internal rage. I just thought it was so unfair, this completely figure I was actually getting on rather well with my fellow prisoners, getting a member of the community, you know, and then the stinker aching, too scared to come out of his cell. And I had to sort of practice smoke coming out of my ears as I walked around the exercise. And then I lumbered into view, most unlikely incongruous figure, who was a monk uh, dressed in his brown habit. And he was part of the chaplaincy team, um, whose job it was to sort of offer a few words of spiritual friendliness to um, the prisoners. So he came up to me and said something completely anodyne, like, how are you getting along? And instead of saying something, Fine, thank you, Father, which is really true. I gave him my anger with both barrels, and I can't remember exactly what I said, but it was along the lines, I know I'm supposed to believe all this Christian tosh, but forgiving your enemies, how can I possibly do this? This thing is a complete fiction. Got angry, and after about three circuits of the exercise yard, um, the monk said to me something rather unexpected. He said, well, matter of fact, I really couldn't agree with you more. He said, we, we, were, we were talking about this in the chaplaincy this morning, and we all follow the prisoners, and we know you're um, actually uh, getting along pretty well. And we know this is complete rubbish. We've all seen you going off to the shower. So who knows? And I, and I said, what's more, this is the thing I can't bear, is written by Mr. Fred XYZ, and he's been sticking pins into me for months and sometimes fairly often unfair. Look at this complete... So I was still boiling and boiling and boiling with hating my enemies. And the monk said, well, you know, before I became a monk, I was a parish priest, and I've come across this kind of thing before. You know, it's a situation which a betrayed wife cannot forgive the husband or her best friend. It's just impossible. And it's no use saying, turn to Matthew 43, verse 44, and forgive your enemies. Um, you know, people can't do it. But he says, I've got a piece of advice for you. Um, you know it's the ideal uh, that uh, you should forgive people. This is what Christ told us. You can't, I know, I can see, I can hear. Um, you can't pray for Mr. XYZ, the journalist, right now. You can't forgive me. What you should do is go away and quietly pray for the gift of forgiveness, to receive the gift of forgiveness. And sooner or later, um, God answers all prayers, and he'll answer that one, and you will be able to forgive, Mr. X, Y, Z. I haven't heard this piece of theological advice from any other source, but how you get to the commands in the Sermon of the Mind, I think is uh, certainly some options are open. Anyway, I did just that, and it didn't happen, you know, quickly. But over a matter of weeks, um, praying for the gift of forgiveness worked for me. 
And I, I think it's fair to say now that I'm a bitterness-free zone about all clashes with journalists, whoever was right or wrong. And I tell you that story because, if nothing else, I think it illustrates that sometimes the only weapon <coughs> we have <coughs> against our own hard-hearted unwillingness to forgive is the power of prayer. And also, if we go back to persecution, the only weapon we seem to have, again, is the power of prayer. And in both cases, like the warmer lifeboatman, we have to get out into the stormy seas of prayer, uh, praying to change our own and other people's hearts. We don't always have to get back. The God to whom we pray will be take care of our homeward journey. And this brings me to the greatest challenge of these hard sayings, which is, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, in verse 48. And that just sounds so unreachable. And, of course, Jesus knew perfectly well that most of us weak-willed sinners may not attain this ideal. But the language here is an exhortation to be like God, to imitate him, and to emulate his love to both the unjust and the just, the evil as well as the good. And the Greek words here are helpful. Uh, be perfect, teleioi, is to be complete, to be mature enough to fulfill your purpose in agape, Christ-like love. And that's all about a love which should well up in us, should well up in us, in our characters, the characters of the donors, when we start to imitate the character of God, uh, the great giver, the great lover of all sinners. One of the most, the best-selling Christian book in the world after uh, the Bible is not Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. It's actually The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, written several centuries ago. And the title alone, plus the text, just illustrates that the whole point of the Christian journey is to imitate uh, Christ, imitate uh, God. Well, is this sometimes virtually impossible? Absolutely, yes. But perhaps not always, if um, we start to train our characters, just as uh, to follow Christ, just as the a warmer lifeboatman would train to brave the stormiest of seas. And in striving to be perfect imitators of Christ, we have to get out. We have to try. In his mercy, we pray and believe that he will love us and get us back to the place where he wants us to be. Amen. I'm by arrangement now willing to take questions on that or any other subject. Thank you. Jonathan's uh, generously said he's happy to take some questions. I wondered if we might turn in uh, groups, threes, fours, where we are, just for one minute or so to reflect, buzz, and uh, then come back with some questions for Jonathan. So why don't we do that where we are then, we'll reconvene in just one minute or so. We're going to have some more time and a moment um, after questions to get back in groups and reflect on all we've heard. But um, why don't we just... Uh, Get cracking with a, a few questions. Any, any questions out there for Jonathan? Generously on, on any topic, really, uh, that his life has, has covered, or persecution, politics, 
Any, anyone? Let, I'm going to run around with the mic so we record them. Yeah, it's Neil. I, I, I was very struck by, and I hadn't heard it before, um, about, you know, we've got to get out, we don't have to get back. And I, I wondered what your thoughts were in terms of Christians in this country, you know, whether we've lost or we need to rediscover the confidence to step out into the wider society. You know, I'm, I'm conscious of the last couple of archbishops. One of the things that's really impressed me about them is that they're, they're actually challenging this sort of, that, you know, religion and politics, you know, should be separate. You know, they're saying, well, actually, you know, we're all in this together. You know, Christian faith is, is, is pervasive. And that, is that something, I mean, what's, what would be your, your feelings about that or your reflections on that? Uh, not being absolutely perfect this morning, I've managed to forget my hearing aid. But I think I heard <coughs> what you said, but um, I may ask once or twice the question to be repeated. I think you were really getting it in the ordinary day-to-day life of a Christian in this country. Uh, there are forms of uh, scorn, harassment. Uh, how should one cope with that? Did I get the gist of it right? Well, if I've got the question right, um, the Christian life and the one you're talking about is full of challenges. And those challenges come in many forms. I mean, on the whole, people don't pull our fingernails out for being Christians uh, here in the UK. Um, but um, they, I often, when I go to universities, I worry about people who might get going on a Christian journey but are sort of turned off by the mood and the atmosphere uh, and often the the mockery and the contempt of um, their their contemporaries. And there's an awful lot of that about. Um, But if we're serious about our Christian journey, uh, should we really be too bothered? Of course, it requires some reserves of moral and spiritual courage to uh, stand up. That old hymn, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. Uh, this is not easy when um, sort of laughter uh, is <coughs> surrounding it. Um, but I think it's. Um, ways, perhaps at first, um, in subtle ways sometimes. Uh, let it be known uh, where one stands on these great spiritual issues raised by the Sermon on the Mount or anywhere else. And um, when I was not a Christian or just a half-Christian, which I now know is about as useful as being half-pregnant, but at the time I thought it was fine, um, (laughs) I I think that um, the one thing I'd have never dreamt of doing was going to a group uh, praying in a group, turning up at 7 o'clock in the morning, this would have been totally 
beyond my horizons. And if I had heard about it, I'd have, I'm sure, rather tended to mock uh, all those crazy evangelicals or Jesus freaks who go off and pray in groups. And yet, of course, I now know, as many of you know, that uh, fellowship is a huge strengthening uh, force. So perhaps one strengthened by a group, one should go outwards. Uh, and it's funny how surprisingly easy it can be do, to do once one is fortified uh, by the prayers and by the fellowship of, of groups. So perhaps start from a group. Um, Jesus and his followers have never really listened all that much to the world. They, they've proclaimed their faith uh, courageously um, without worrying about the norms of, of what people are saying in the pubs or the Sanhedrins uh, in their own time. So it's not easy, but go for it. Brilliant. Another question here. Uh, Jonathan, thank you for this morning. Um, to what extent do you think that lots of our lack of love and lack of forgiveness of others is actually prompted by pride, by self-righteousness, by thinking that we're actually better than those people? Spot-on question. Um, when I give sort of what I could call testimony talks, I often say that, you know, <clears throat> when I was sitting around uh, in a cell in Belmarsh Prison, I had plenty of time to ask myself the question, well, why on earth did I manage to mess up so badly? It takes a real artist in messes to uh, go from a rising cabinet minister, whatever I was, to a fallen convict with a lot of collateral damage on the way. And I'd say, quite honestly, you know, the um, one word answer to that question, well, where did I go wrong, was pride. And to get how important a factor it is on uh, almost anybody's um, spiritual journey or obstacles of anyone's spiritual journey. A great chapter to read is the chapter in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity called The Great Sin. And what Lewis really says is the great sin is pride. Um, first of all, it makes those who puffed up with it are much more detestable to their own contemporaries than they realize. And secondly, Pride puts a roadblock between any kind of uh, right relationship uh, with God. And um, I, if I'd ever been asked, do you have a relationship with God in my half-Christian decades, I'd have thought that's the most ghastly, cheesy question. Um, <clears throat> and I'd have answered it rather nervously, well, I, I am C of E or something like that. And, um, but um, I wouldn't have ever thought about it. And yet when I do think about it, I think, well, it wasn't totally bad. I had a relationship with God, rather like I used to have a relationship with the bank manager in the country town where I grew up in the days when we did have real flesh and blood bank managers instead of computers in Bangladesh. Um, and uh, I, um, there were some good things in that relationship. Um, for example, I knew he existed, bank manager stroke God. I thought he was the kind of person who you ought to be polite to and therefore visit in his premises every so often. I thought on the whole he was, should be visited also because he'd be useful to me, uh, perhaps with a spiritual equivalent overdraft. But all that time, the huge obstacle was that I was proud of my own life and modest success. And so I thought I was in charge of the account. 
And so pride is the greatest obstacle to a right relationship with God. And you perhaps realize it when you start to read the Sermon on the Mount in any detail, uh, how great those obstacles are. And you've put your finger on uh, one which is the biggest obstacle of all. Thanks, Jonathan, so much. Would you mind sharing us, sharing with us something of how you became a Christian yourself? I'd love to hear your short testimony, if you would. Well, I'll be very quick. Um, I started from the low base. I've really been talking about pride and um, a wrong relationship with God and being a Sunday Christian, which you can easily kid yourself into in thinking that's... And then I, I went through this terrific crash, which is well known about. And I think I'd have been a pretty insensitive sort of person if having that huge crash and sort of uh, success to jail, if I hadn't stopped somewhere along the line and said, well, you know, where did I lose my uh, practical as well as moral and spiritual anchors? And I wish I could tell audiences that there was one moment when something happened and hallelujah, bingo, I've seen the light, I'm a Christian. And there are plenty of people who can tell exactly those stories and their testimonies, but um, I can't because with me there was a journey um, and it was um, a very imperfect journey uh, consisting of trying something which I didn't really want to try, um, stumbling, falling, sinning, backsliding, doubting, and yet and yet and yet, um, despite all those negative um, drawbacks or obstacles, um, somehow there was a momentum going. And where did that momentum come from? Well, I think first and foremost it came from uh, extraordinary people who, seeing my life in a complete mess, um, wanted to come alongside me and try and offer to help. One of the first ones is actually a man who's now chief executive um, of CSW called Mervyn Thomas. And he rang my doorbell one day, uh, and I did know him because he was a sort of conservative party member and things like that, but I just, just knew him. And he rang the doorbell and said, I see you're having a terrible time. Can I come in and pray with you? And I thought, crikey. I mean, <laughs> praying out loud was not what we Anglicans did. <laughs> this guy wanted to pray with me. Anyway, he did. At the end of it, I said, thank you very much. Um, but I don't think I'd like to do it again. <laughs> he was rather persistent, uh, as good Christians are. And he came back, and he came back with a man, I'm sorry to say, I'd spent 20-odd years in the House of Commons with and I thought he was a very dull and uninteresting man. This was somebody called Michael Allison, who was church warden for a time at HTB. And um, he and one or two other people um, gathered around, and they started to say, well, we think we need regular prayer support. I wasn't very keen on that either. But they came around uh, sort of on a, almost on a weekly basis. And then one of them said, um, we've been talking among ourselves and we think you should be an alpha do an alpha course and I said what's that and they then handed me some extremely inaccurate 
newspaper cuttings about how uh, happy clappies all confess their sins in groups and things like that. Complete rubbish, but others, I said, I'm never going to do the Alpha course. I mean, I don't need that. But somehow they persuaded me, and then I went off and did my first Alpha course, and it was a group led by someone who's here today, Bruce Strother. And um, I was a pretty nervous um, uh, participant at the beginning, and my initial reactions after the first Alpha course was one of huge relief. No one had happied or clappied at me. No one had um, asked me to, to confess my sins in public, which had taken a rather long time. And I kept saying, well, you know, Bruce is very nice, and Sandy Miller, my old Caledonian Society dancing partner, is rather good as preaching. I never realized he had that talent. Um, but um, I don't think I'll come next Thursday if I got a better invitation. There was a time when I was getting no better invitations or no invitations at all. So I kept going, and the Alpha Course was tremendously important, and I did have a Holy Spirit experience. But even then, I didn't want to get absolutely, totally committed. But gradually, um, that's sort of the thing about momentum. Um, it's a, a spiritual journey and how it happens. But the one constant thing was prayer. And that's why I rather focused on prayer in my uh, talk today. Um, and at the Alpha Course, there's a, uh, one of the talks is called something like, How Should We Pray? And I always remember it was given, first talk not given by a vicar, it was given by an attractive young woman in a miniskirt. And, uh, at first I was more interested in the miniskirt than the message, but as she got going, I realized I was hearing a remarkable talk, and it ended up sort of how you should pray. Um, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, have this, what you call this formula to restructure your prayer life. I didn't have a prayer life to uh, restructure, but nevertheless, rather lonely time, my wife had left me, children or around schools, and so I did try the ACTS formula, um, and that's sort of not immediately, but it worked, and so the journey gathered momentum. And this is a rather bad answer to your question, how did I become a Christian? Uh, the answer is, in spite of myself, um, Christian brothers and God himself got to me. Jonathan, perhaps I wonder if I might throw a question in before we turn in groups to um, discuss and pray for each other. But given the topic this morning, uh, the call of Christ to love our enemies, um, and daily our newspapers are filled with uh, news and images, stories coming out um, of the atrocities of ISIS um, abroad. What would your counsel be, um, wisdom, on our response to extreme Islam and its violence, um, either at home or abroad? Well, just keep in mind one or two old-fashioned sayings like, imitate Christ, what would Jesus do? And, of course, Jesus and God, they hate sin and they love truth. So I don't think there would be any compromise about saying that the bestialities of ISIS are to be condemned. There's no question of that. And we shouldn't, um, if we were put in the position, run away from the truth of the Christian gospel and the quite different set of rules that uh, we try to obey and are just simply not there in the 
Koran. It's a book of rules. Ours is a, Bible is a book of love and forgiveness. Um, but also remember that um, trying immediately to get angry and to hit back um, is not necessarily, certainly as individuals, maybe states can hit back, but um, it's not the right road for us. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Uh, people who do these terrible uh, things and commit these terrible crimes, uh, one day uh, they will face God's judgment. Um, and there are wonderful psalms which are very good on the theology of this. Uh, there's a psalm, I think it's 73, which begins with a man who's frightfully pleased with himself but can't understand why the wicked prosper. Why? And then I, halfway through the psalm he says, then I went into the sanctuary and suddenly I saw what God does to the wicked. Uh, and he'd obviously got a vision. So I think our job is to do what this passage of the Sermon on the Mount, remember that God loves the just and the unjust, um, both in big pictures and in small things. The story of an old rabbi who in uh, his Judaism could never understand why men who had a field uh, often got plenty of sun and rain when he never went near the synagogue and was a thoroughly bad character. But even in that faith, the, the people who do bad things can still be loved and forgiven or judged by God. That's his business. Let our business be to proclaim the gospel, follow the teachings, and to do what Jesus would do, which would be to be willing to forgive any repentant sinner, but probably to be pretty harsh on those who commit some of the bestialities we've been talking about today. And indeed, in, later on in Matthew's Gospel, you see what Jesus has to say about the whited sepulchres of the Pharisees and so on. You see, he's not backward in uh, condemning too, but let judgment be the Lord's. Jonathan, thank you so much. Um, gents, we've got uh, just over five minutes left. I think it'd be fantastic to turn in our groups um, to reflect a little on all that we've heard this morning um, and then look to encourage each other and pray for each other. We need God's help to uh, lead this life and seek to imitate Christ. So let's chat a little and then pray for each other, and then we'll finish up at 8 o'clock. If you're still praying, gents, please do. Please do complete your prayers. Jonathan just wanted to bring to your attention that um, there is a gentleman called Bill Lowe. Bill, are you in the... Oh, there you are. Bill, he's just here in the front group from Christian Solidarity Worldwide. If you'd like to know more about that organization, or I believe you might have some resources even on you, uh, then do grab Bill at the end to find out a little bit more about CSW's work and all that's going on with that. Um, fantastic to see you this morning. We're back here in two weeks' time uh, with the Reverend Paul Perkin looking at the tough saying of burning in hell. So uh, we look forward to seeing Hopefully that won't be your experience in two weeks' time. But... Um, we look forward to seeing you there. It's a, it's a big topic, a hot topic. So come and join us. Uh, apologies, I couldn't resist. And do make a donation on your way out, donation box. Uh, suggested donation is £5 a session. Great to see you, gents. Go well, stay strong. Uh, love your enemies.